Matthew 1, 18 through 25 in the NIV, um, but really uh, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter of Matthew 1 as context. And this is the fourth week of Advent, um, and we just lit the candle of peace. And as I think about peace, I think about peace and my experiences with Christian culture and peace and the word peace. And a lot of times we think, oh, what it means to be Christian is to keep the peace or not step into conflict or not rock the boat. Or if you say something like you are not being Christian because you're creating, you know, conflict. But my real life experience of peace is sometimes when something is amiss or there's conflict, you have to actually step into conflict in order for there to be peace in the long run. Are you, are you with me? Do you agree? Like being Christian and being loving or being peacemakers isn't necessarily just being nice and into harmony, which for me, who grew up as a conflict avoidant person, it's scary. It's a scary proposition. David, why don't you tell them you don't like that? I'm like, oh, is there a way I can say that indirectly? Or like, maybe like, is there a passive aggressive way I can like hit that thing so that people will get the point? And in, you know, in the Northwest, we're used to this, right? A lot of people who move in from outside of the Northwest are like, oh, the Northwest is such a nice culture, right? It's such, they're so passive aggressive in the Northwest. This is what I hear from my East Coast friends, friends from New York all the time. Just say it like it is, right? It doesn't mean someone doesn't, I, you don't like them or you're mad at them just because you disagree with them. And so there's this conflict, I think, in the church that, that says, you know, if something's wrong, we're not supposed to be prophetic or speak truth into a situation. Because if you do that, you're promoting disunity. Case in point, you know, I won't get into the details, but I posted something on Facebook recently. And you know if you, you post something as a pastor, as a Christian, controversial, that you're going to get those random people who just write paragraphs underneath and you're like, who are you? Like, and why are you like writing this manifesto underneath my post? And so, you know, and the temptation for me is to like, man, I'm going to ream them on with my intelligent, articulate response. And, but then God and the Holy Spirit has been working on me, you know, as a pastor, maybe you should kind of be a peacekeeper, you know, kind of, you know. So I'm, I'm always torn, like, what am I supposed to do? Do I, like, express my full political convictions and, like, really just slam this person? Or do, do I, like, just stay above the fray? And so my response was, others? Question mark. It's like, surely people who know me will come to my defense, right? Like, and then we can allow an open conversation to happen, and I don't have to get involved, right? And, uh, and usually I'm telling Janice, okay, don't say anything, don't say anything, because she's pretty fired up usually, and will say something very blunt. We all experience those things. And when you look at the life of Jesus, Right? And his very coming to the earth, his very presence. Like Jesus, we'll, we'll learn this later in Easter, and we all know that Jesus was crucified on the cross. He was tortured. Like he definitely overturned the paradigm, right? He definitely challenged the ways that were. He definitely 
like disrupted the foundations of society and the ruling, whatever the ruling kind of systems were. Otherwise, they wouldn't have killed them, right? And so we need to know that at the base, Christianity and the Christian faith and the way was a confrontation to the powers, right? Whether that's Rome, whether that's the religious system of the day. He was confronting those things. He was redefining, or maybe not redefining, but saying, this is what God is about. This is my Father's heart. This is what Scripture is really about, and you guys have it messed up. And in fact, I will go into the temple and turn everything around, turn over tables. I will get you know, some sticks and whip you with it because you are turning my house of prayer into a den of thieves and robbers. And justice is not happening in this place. You are not allowing access for all people to my father's house by, by doing these unfair practices, right? And look at all these people who are yearning for God, who are yearning for healing, who are yearning for you know, something from heaven to just say, you are my beloved, I care about you people. They're longing for this. Look at how they flocked around Jesus. And so God, through Jesus, is saying to the world, I love you. You matter to me. I hear you. Amen? And this was disruptive. It's always disruptive when the marginalized are uplifted and heard, right, over and against the powers. Are you with me, church? Yeah. Um, and so my title for the sermon today is called Disruptive Presence. Because Jesus, we're waiting for Jesus' arrival on the earth for the birth of a baby. And this late little baby was a disruption to the way things were. And disruption to people all around this event. And a disruption, in our case, to Joseph's life. And we're going to look at that some more. So, um, first of all, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, which is the, uh, some call the Annunciation to Joseph. Annunciation is the angel coming and announcing the birth of Jesus. Typically, it's kind of connected to Mary's, like the, the angel coming to Mary and saying, you're going to give birth to Jesus, right? But Joseph also has an Annunciation with the angel. And where he's told, Mary is pregnant, and the virgin will conceive and birth, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I imagine uh, putting myself in Joseph's shoes, that this is a pretty disruptive, this is like, is this good news, or is this like hard news, or this just rock my world type of news, or is it oof? I think it's, it's definitely an oof. Right, and I wanted to uh, have us look at this picture. It's by Anton Raphael Mengs, The Dream of St. Joseph. But if you look at this painting, and last week we looked at a painting by Hecke, and now we look at this painting, and what do you see just in Joseph, Joseph's demeanor? He's having to think. He's what? He's having to think about this. Yes, he's having to think, definitely. He's like, hmm. What to do, what to do. Yep. So there's a thinking aspect we like to think when we put our knuckles on our chins, right? Um, does he look happy or excited, elated? He's having a baby! He looks 
passing out cigars. What? He looks depressed. Depressed, yeah. And if the if the point is that pointing go that way? Go yeah. Like him, he's does not look like he's full of that idea. Yeah. He's facing the opposite direction and he looks pointing. Yeah. This is how I was feeling when the NFL, you know, decided to play football on Saturday and and uh, I had some chores to do. And Janice is like, go that way, take out the trash. And I'm like, I'm watching football. And we've all experienced these types of feelings, right? When what we expected, the happy outcome, the happy story, gets disrupted or interrupted by tragedy or by something we didn't expect. Imagine Joseph, right? And in times like these, uh, back in those days, it says it said uh, Joseph was pledged to be married, uh, to Mary, uh, but before they came together, she was found pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And in, back in those days, engagement wasn't just like, oh, here's a diamond ring. He went to Jared's, right? It wasn't. A, it's more. It was more than just the diamond ring and like a selfie of like, oh, look at it, right? Or oh, you put a ring on it, you know, Beyonce dancing with her dancers. But it was. It was a legal contract, an actual legal contract, and more like, you know, there's probably a dowry involved. There's probably two families coming together and saying, agreeing upon something, and it was. It was a binding contract. Right? And usually in, in those cultures, there is that expectation that the woman who's engaged would be a virgin, right, at marriage. And a lot of bad things did happen and could happen if it was discovered that the woman was not a virgin. But he learns that she's pregnant. And so in his head, and most of us, our heads, logically, we'd be like, well, I didn't do anything. Right? So she's cheating on me. Right? And she's pregnant. And so I'd imagine he's feeling very sad and very um, disappointed. Maybe angry. Maybe jealous. Enraged, even. But then in verse 19, we read that because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. And he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Right? So there's an amount of kindness in Joseph, an amount of mercy. Though by the law, technically, he could do a lot of things and make this public, but he didn't want to disgrace her. So he's able to overcome maybe some of the feelings that most of us would naturally feel to like, get back, get even, cut it off, throw this person under the bus, right? Fire, burn everything down. Um, disruption, right? Jesus' birth narrative for Joseph was disruption. For Mary, it was disruption. Not what they planned. Not what they wanted. And it doesn't even feel good anymore. How was Joseph feeling at this moment? And then the question to us is, how do we respond when things turn for the worse? How do we respond when our plans fail? When what seemed good all of a sudden becomes bad or tragic? When disappointment strikes, do you respond in anger? 
Does depression strike you? Do you avoid and deny? And I know I've been criticized a lot during Christmas and Advent because Christmas is a happy time, right? Presents and elves and elves on the shelf and like eggnog and Starbucks and woohoo, yes, right? But in the Bible, it's not, it's really raw. If you read between the lines and you look at, there was, there was a lot of things that happened that were really bad. And there was a lot of hard things that people had to accept in their lives. There was disruption and there was confrontation. Imagine Herod, Herod's response to Jesus, the king of the Jews being born, was that he felt threatened, so threatened, his power felt so threatened that he ordered genocide of infants. Ouch! So before we like gloss everything over with Hallmark, right, there's a lot of stuff in the nativity, in the infant narratives, that is bad news. Right? And that's because peace on earth takes disruption. And disruption pisses a lot of people off. To us men out there, often it's difficult for men to respond well when we feel out of control. All of us don't respond well when we feel out of control. But I only know man things, so I'm going to address that. When things are out of our hands, it's like, where's my hammer? Where's my screwdriver? What? I can't do anything about it? Ah! You tell me what to do. I need to do something. Right? It's enough that my wife is pregnant and I can't do anything about that. But I'm not forming this baby. I'm not carrying this baby. Everything is out of control, and I won't meet this baby until later. And now you're saying this child is not mine? Now you're saying God has a different plan? Be shut up, be quiet, just be faithful. Oh, heck no! How do I let go of this? The angel appears in a dream and brings a new blueprint, the new plans to the building. And the angel was saying, Joseph, put on your hard hat. This is what's happening. And I imagined, okay, this is where I'm coming off scripture and putting my own interpretations on things. I imagine Joseph, because he's a carpenter, to be one of those big burly guys that's all about that action boss, right? That, you know, is about hammer and nail and not about any drama, just like, I'm going to fix this thing. Give me something to fix, and I'll fix it. And maybe he's strong and stuff. Maybe the strong, silent type that's just always there, consistent. And here you go. This happens. This drama happens. And he's like, what do I do? And the angel brings a new blueprint. This is what God is doing. Right? The virgin will conceive and give a birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Actually, you're going to be the surrogate father of the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for, the savior of the whole world. Bam, that's it. So Old Testament Easter eggs and Matthew's genealogy. Our passage follows immediately after a genealogy that Matthew writes. And we remember 
genealogies in Sunday school class when we had to read the Old Testament. This person begat this person, this person begat this person, this person begat th this person, and you would like skip pages and like, this is so boring, who cares who begat who? Right? And usually these genealogies all involved the eldest son, right? Begat the next, the first son of the firstborn of the first son and the firstborn. They never included women, right? But Matthew's genealogy has some Easter eggs, if you will. And I'm getting this chart from, um, from online, uh, what did I say? By Jeffrey Krantz. Um, some little nuggets that if you're just glossing over, oh, this is another genealogy, skip it, skip it, skip it. You might miss these things. And some of the things that we have to see is that, one, this genealogy highlights three sets of 14 generations. You'll see from, the, from Adam to David was 14 generations, from David to blah, blah, blah was 14 generations, and then from this person to Joseph was 14 generations. That's three sets of 14 generations. Three times 14 is the same as six times seven, which is, what, what is that, 42? Uh, and th which makes Jesus the seventh seven. Okay, so if you're a numbers person, whoa, seven, 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 right? Seven, the perfect number. So there's some God stuff going on in there. The second thing we have to note in this genealogy before our passage is that women in the, uh, there are women in the genealogy, and most of these women, just their presence point towards scandal, right? Point towards scandal. So some of them include uh, Tamar. Does anyone remember Tamar? Right? Tamar, she is the daughter-in-law of her husband, who she basically ends up having two sons with. So just to clarify that, so Judah's eldest son dies. And in the Leverite rules, um, in order to take care of um, the wives of men who died, it was the duty of the next son in line to take on that woman as his wife. Well, the eldest or the second son ends up sleeping with her, but... It says he spilled a seed, he, and there's just scandal. And, and then the next son wouldn't. And Judah would not offer his other sons because he didn't want uh, his other sons to have to make that choice. So he sends her out. And so she is left with no recourse but to get tricky, right? So she poses as a prostitute. And Judah, coming along, ends up being with her as a prostitute and gives her his robe, his staff, and other things that represent who he is. And then when she gets pregnant by him, Judah says, accuses her of prostitution and says, she needs to be stoned because she has been living as a prostitute. And then she brings out his robe, his things, and says, well, you are that man. And so he's like, oh my gosh, I better, right? It's like a, it's like a back in the day, Maury Povich, you are the father. <laughs> and so, so she actually becomes, so the daughter-in-law actually becomes the wife, right? 
And so um, they have these two sons. So those two sons and Tamar are in the gene and Jesus' genealogy. Rahab, do you remember Rahab? Rahab was in the city, the pagan city, when in uh, Joshua, the people of Israel are in the promised land and they're sending spies to the city. Right? She allows them to spy and hides them in a basket and lowers them down in order for them to escape, which allows the people of Israel to take over the city. But she's also a prostitute and a Gentile. And so that, she's in Jesus' genealogy. And you have to remember, in Scripture and other places, when people are writing down the genealogy of kings, women are not included. And neither are scandals. The whole point of a genealogy of a king is to show how great he is, right? He comes from good pedigree, right? He comes from a great line. Not, oh, this per this prostitute and this this scandal and this shady activity. Um, and then it's interesting how they talk about, I'll just give one another, uh, Solomon, right? David is Solomon's father. But it says, Solomon, uh, whose father was David, and whose mother was Uriah's wife. And you're like, that's like an extra burn, right? <laughs> Why didn't they just say Bathsheba, who was David's wife? No, they had to point back to the scandal, right? Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife, who David killed because he wanted Bathsheba. Right? Just the shadiness. Um, and so these are some of the things that are in Jesus' genealogy. Scandal, right? Non-Jewish outsiders. All of these things are there. And then some other, other notes in the genealogy. Um, Matthew uses, says Asaph instead of Asa. Asaph is actually a psalmist, but the name of the father is actually Asa but he purposely names a famous psalmist. And then secondly, he says Amos and not Amon. Amon is the father, but Matthew using Amos naturally points to the prophet Amos. So here you have Matthew giving a shout out to the Psalms and to the prophets, right? Two, two major parts of the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures. And then who do you see at top? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was Jacob the son, uh, father of? Jacob was actually father of the 12 tribes of Israel, basically, right? 12 sons, Judah being the oldest, and Joseph was the thir that 13th son that was sent into slavery in Egypt, but actually became the prince of Egypt and was a part of saving the whole family and the people of Israel because of God's work in his life. So it's Jacob and Judah, but if you move down to the end, the other, the Joseph, Jesus' father, his father was Jacob, right? So it's Jacob, Judah, Jacob, J Joseph, right? Just like it's Jacob, Joseph, Jacob, Joseph. And so there's a kind of, in that, it's cool, right? Basically, this is freaky. Joseph, we know in the Old Testament, was known for his dreams, right? Joseph the dreamer. Joseph here, Jesus' father in chapter 2, has four different dreams. And this is what we're focused on, the first dream and here in, in chapter 1. 
And Joseph's response after each dream is, he's not a man of many words, right? It just says, and he took his family and did what he was told, right? Oh, Joseph, the woman you're engaged to is going to have the Savior of the world, give birth to the Savior of the world, and you have nothing to do with it. But take care of her, <laughs> right? And then later in chapter 2, hey, Joseph, King Herod is wanting to kill all the babies in the land. You need to take, you need to get up from here and go. Immigrate, immigrate to Egypt. And it says, so he took his family and went. No words, no nothing. And it says, oh, Herod died. Come back. So they come back. He takes his family and they come back. Oh, actually, Herod did die, but his son is worse than Herod. Go Go to Galilee. Okay, we'll go to Galilee. And this is all to fulfill the prophecy that out of Nazareth, out of Galilee, my son will be born, or will come out of Galilee and Nazareth. So there's just this amazing connection that scripture points to the sevens. The seven, and Jesus as the seventh seven. Right? If God created earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested, Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, is the seventh seven. Right? You have the six, and then Jesus is coming as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the seventh seven. Scripture's blueprint and Scripture's plan is perfect, but the people who are part of in this narrative, in this, who are playing the parts in this story, their lives are just crazy. It's just disruption and messed up. Because when God is in control, sometimes our life gets messed up. Amen? Let me give you the truth. We live in the illusion that when we're in control, life is pretty and put together, right? But that's not really true at all either. So basically, life is going to be out of control. Are you going to lean into the seven and the seven and the seven? Are you going to lean into the one who's in control? Jesus' birth changes everything. It brings a disruptive presence into the world. The old has gone, gone and the new has come. Jesus shakes the foundations of society. Jesus' birth brings down princes and rulers and kingdoms. Jesus, uh, we learn later that magis from distant lands come just to visit. Jesus. Many people think Persia, Iran is where the Magi come from. Just randomly. And then everyone who visits the birth of this baby, the shepherds, the Magi, everyone, they fall down and worship when they see this baby. When Herod learns of this baby, it drives him crazy. And he orders genocide. The presence of Jesus disrupts everything. And the question is, how do you handle disruption in your life? Do you fight? Do you flee? Do you turn to escapism? Do you just numb things? Well, it didn't happen, denial. It's not, right? Everything's gonna be all good. Now, what about faithful action? What does that look like in the midst of disruption, when God is doing his work in the world, when 
God is doing his work in your life. What does it look like to be faithful? Because you know, actually, disruption can be a positive force of transformation in the world and in our lives. Sometimes we can look at Joseph in the painting after this, and we can be feeling like Joseph does. What do I do now? Why me? This sucks. But what feels like loss can be an opportunity. You guys hear WWJD? Not what would Jesus do, but what did what would Joseph do? <laughs> what what are you gonna do? Right? What feels like loss can be an opportunity. A new shoot coming out of a stump. Will you wait? Will we wait well in good ways for Jesus Christ coming? Will we wait well by actively responding in quiet action, leaning into the unknown? Right? Go. Go. You're sitting there confused. Just do what do what I say. Go. No, it's scary. Go. Go, Joseph. Go into the unknown. Because I have something good for you there. And sometimes that feels like tearing down and a tearing apart. Because it's things we're comfortable with and that we we know. But we need to go through that conflict, that tearing down, in order for peace and joy and goodness to reign in our hearts. Are you with me, church? Just like as a community of faith in the world, we do have to shake the boat. We We do have to shake the branches and stir things up when we disagree with people, when injustice is happening when the wrong people are ruling in the wrong ways. We do have to speak up. That's what the church is for. We are a body, a community of counterculturals that's here for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of the poor and the hurting and those who need healing, amen? For the sake of the lost, for the sake of the foreigner and the orphan and the widow. Because that's who God stood for. That's, that's who God put in his story. Right? There are no wine caves in God's story. There are Gentiles. There are women. There's scandal. There's prostitutes. There's incest. In Jesus' story. So, will you roll with the happy Hallmark picture, or will you roll with Jesus? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your advent. Thank you that you came to this world because you loved us. Love came down and rescued us. And you have rescued us, and I pray that we would stand with you, that we would claim you, that we would wait in active faithfulness for you, even when everything is against us, even when 
The odds are stacked against us. Even when we're like, this is crazy. This is messing with my life. I don't want to do this. We wait for you, Jesus, to shine your light in our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name.